I think it's the way in which we approached globalization in many ways that was problematic. I mean, we optimized it not for the benefit of people generally, but for the bank accounts of a few multinational corporations particularly. The market can be a huge and powerful force. It's not as big as Mother Nature, but Father Greed can really rival her. I'm afraid we'll go down as not the greatest generation, but the greediest generation. From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, one American capitalist's desperate attempt to save us from ourselves. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. Today on Pitchfork Economics, we get to talk to a a super interesting person, the writer and commentator Thomas Friedman, about uh, the fragility of society today and the way in which sort of greed and globalization has created that fragility. Yeah, and that and that fits in well, Nick, with a lot of what we've been writing and talking and thinking about uh, over the past couple of years, which is how uh, the past few decades of uh, neoliberal policy and drastically rising inequality has made not just our economy more fragile and our and American families more fragile, but our democracy more fragile. And Tom has been in dialogue a lot with uh, Eric Beinhocker at the Institute for New Economic Thinking around new economic ideas. And Tom and Eric and I had a really super fun chat uh, a few weeks ago and out of that chat came a piece that he wrote called How We Broke the World that explored some of these issues, which I thought was pretty good. And uh, it'll be really interesting to discuss how his view of the world intersects with our own. I think we're more sharply critical of market fundamentalism and neoliberalism than he is. But uh, in any case, very, very smart person, and uh, it should be really interesting to hear his perspective. For those of you who don't know, Thomas Friedman is a longtime columnist for the New York Times. He is a three-time Pulitzer Prize winner and the author of The Lexus and the Olive Tree, The World is Flat, most recently, Thank You for Being Late, and other books. My name is Thomas Friedman. I'm the foreign affairs columnist for the New York Times and the author most recently of Thank You for Being Late, An Optimist Guide to Thriving in the Age of Acceleration. You're still optimistic these days? With enough drugs, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Tom, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, and um, we wanted to focus this conversation around your recent piece in the New York Times on how uh, how we broke uh, the world and the you know the ideas contained therein and by the way thank you for the shout out uh, to me but tell us you just sort of relate the thesis of that piece which we thought was really interesting and compelling well you know I woke up one day and just started thinking about what I've been doing for the last 20 years and the thought popped into my head that pandemics are us I've been covering different kinds of pandemics for the last 20 years, a geopolitical pandemic called 9-11, a financial pandemic called 2008, 
a biological pandemic called COVID-19 and a looming atmospheric pandemic called climate change. Um, and so I, I sat down with myself and said, what's going on? Why is that? Well, every, every seven years we have this global shaking event. And um, I eventually, as I thought about it and talked to some people, I, I concluded that it's because uh, three things in particular have come together. One is that globalization has gotten more tight, more broad and more deep than ever before. In other words, more people from more places are connected with more speed than ever before. Uh, the world is really tighter and more greased. At the same time, um, we've been removing buffers uh, all over the place. Buffers can be everything from ecological buffers as we invade uh, wildlife areas we didn't invade before with urban settlement. Um, they can be uh, editing buffers. Uh, we go from uh, the New York Times to get our news from Facebook or Twitter straight without an editing buffer. We have financial buffers. We went to just-in-time inventory, um, so nothing is stock now. Everything's just comes to you just in time. And we've moved financial buffers. You know, we've now got computers trading with computers uh, in, in, in milliseconds. Um, and the third thing that was going on is people were still people, still doing crazy stuff that they always do. But now when someone does crazy stuff, their craziness can be transmitted at a speed that we've never seen before. And therefore, the world becomes a, a, a less stable and um, more prone to pandemic kind of place. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you point to greed and globalization as major factors in creating this fragility. So one of the things that we wanted to explore was you know, let's start with globalization, right? Because I, I think you and I would agree that you're not, I, I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't either argue for a, an isolationist world, correct? Absolutely. There are some very obvious benefits to an interconnected world, but I think it's the way in which we approached globalization in many ways that was problematic. I mean, we optimized it not for the benefit of people generally, but for the bank accounts of a few multinational corporations, particularly. You know, globalization is everything in its opposite. So it can be incredibly democratizing. Wow. Maybe a bunch of kids just took down Trump's rally by using TikTok. But it can also be incredibly authoritarian. Uh, suddenly, Facebook decides what we all read. Uh, it can be incredibly um, particularizing. You know, uh, there's a woman selling pottery in Peru now who can reach an audience here in Bethesda. And it can be incredibly homogenizing. She now has a McDonald's on two corners of her little town in Peru. Right. And so uh, globalization goes both ways. It's, it's everything and it's opposite. So it all depends what values we bring to it and how we shape it. And so that's why, you know, if, if you look at the, the Lexus Neology, which is the first time I wrote about globalization, a book I wrote in 1999, and then The World is Flat, uh, which came out in 2005, in both books, I had long sections on the backlash against globalization. I, I, I dare say I, I may have even invented that term. You know what I mean? So I was always aware of this. And I found the globalization debate kind of got stupid because I got conflated with, um, because I wrote about it, somehow being the, you know, the prophet of it. I was just trying to understand uh, so I could explain the world what was going on. And I make no apologies for believing that if we governed it the right way, shaped it the right way, it could be enormously beneficial. More people have come out of poverty faster 
uh, in India and China, thanks to globalization, than any time in the history of the world. At the same time, more people in the developed world probably lost their middle-class jobs faster because we didn't have the surge protectors around globalization when we suddenly plugged into China and India. You know, And so there are governance issues, and you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but there's no excuse for not thinking about it and governing it the right way. And that's that's really been my my perspective on it. So so let me ask you a question because I'm I'm old enough to remember when uh, we were told that globalization was going to make us more resilient, particularly the economy, uh, because ah the whole world isn't going to go into recession at the same time. If things go down in Europe, they'll you know maybe they'll be up in China uh, or the U.S. will help buffer it out. And as it turns out we are more fragile than we've ever been before. Is that due to globalization or due to the peculiar way we've implemented globalization? Yeah, it's a very good question. And I wrestled with that in this piece and I, I may even do a book out of it, you know, and, and try to go deeper, but it's surely the way um, in, in, in large part, the way we've handled it. So let's go through each of these four incidents. And because uh, they all are, are slightly different, but they have certain overarching commonalities. In each case, we had a warning heart attack, and then we had the full-blown coronary. So uh, in the late 90s, we had um, a man named Ramzi Youssef who um, tried to blow up the World Trade Center. Uh, I believe it was 1997. He was an Islamist radical. And then we had the full coronary with Osama bin Laden. And to me, what that was about was uh, the Arab world losing its pluralism, its biodiversity, basically, and becoming more of a monoculture. Uh, and this was a product of uh, the Saudi Arabia and Iran both turning right in 1979 and also uh, coming into possession of an enormous amount of oil wealth at the same time. And together, their competition for supremacy in the Muslim world really changed the face of Islam and made it much more of a monoculture than a polyculture. And let's remember Islam was at its most powerful uh, in the Middle Ages in Moorish Spain when it was the world's greatest polyculture. You know, monocultures in nature are enormously susceptible to disease. And I would uh, argue that monocultures in politics uh, are enormously susceptible to diseased ideas. So that was a case where the the cultural uh, and religious buffers what I would call uh, gender pluralism, religious pluralism, uh, political pluralism, and education pluralism, which were already weak in that part of the world, really got leached out. And bin Laden was one of the products of that. Remember, we had a Mahdi you know, in Sudan in the 1800s, I believe, um, but he didn't have a globalized world uh, to transmit his radicalism to New York City um, and to the Pentagon. In the late 90s, we had warning heart attack. That was um, a hedge fund called Long-Term Capital Management. It managed to amass a trillion dollars in leverage because we had removed the buffer of transparency. So every individual bank that was a counterparty to uh, Long-Term Capital Management's trades knew about their exposure, but they had no clue how much total exposure LTCM had, had built up. And that loss of that buffer of transparency um, almost you know, brought the Wall Street down. The Fed had to step in and, and several other global banks. And then, of course, we got the full coronary in 2008. Um, again, a loss of, of buffers in that case. Just the common sense of who should get a mortgage and who shouldn't and how mortgages should be rated and how they shouldn't. Um, and so, uh, again, you, you see the same features there. Of course, with the pandemic, 
Uh, we had SARS in 2002. Uh, it was the warning heart attack. In that, in that case, um, the warning heart attack was that we had invaded uh, wildlife ecosystems with, um, uh, with development. And what we'd done when we did that was we eliminated the biodiversity buffer. Uh, we were going into ecosystems, killing the apex predators in them, leaving behind only the generalized species that can live in destroyed ecosystems. These are called bats, rats, and primates, basically. And these bats, rats, and primates co-evolve with these viruses in the wild. And then we extract them from the wild, bring them into wet markets in, in Wuhan or other places. And they either bite a human or bite a mammal, a mammal that humans bite into, and suddenly you've got a zoonotic disease jumping from the wild into humans. That's what, what SARS was all about. It was the warning heart attack. And of course, COVID-19 is the full coronary. And I would argue we're getting- We hope. We hope. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I would argue that we're living right now with the warning heart attacks all over on climate change. You know, they're called New Orleans and Houston and the Arctic reaching record um, temperatures. And the danger about um, ignoring this warning heart attack is that with climate change, there is no peak. Climate change does not peak like a pandemic. It, and, and there's no herd immunity. Once the Arctic uh, ice cap is, is, uh, is melted, we will have to live with the implications of a different sea level rise and, and um, an earth that no longer reflects the rays of the sun. Once the, the Amazon flips from a, a rainforest to a savanna, we'll have to live with that forever. There's no herd immunity to climate change. There's just an endless pounding on the herd. The one thing there is, though, with climate change, the difference from COVID-19 is that we actually know the cure right now. The cure is, is uh, hiding in plain sight. Uh, it's called reducing CO2 emissions and protecting uh, ecosystems that, that actually protect us. So the big challenge is where, you know, whether politicians will rise to this. You know, we uh, sort of as professionals, but I think all thoughtful citizens in the world today are groping around, you know, maybe it's scapegoating. Maybe we're all just trying to find somebody, you know, in, in the worst instance, we're all trying to find someone or something to blame. But in the best instance, we are all reflecting in the best way that we know how on where we went wrong. You know, if you're not reflecting on that today, then, you, you know, you're not paying attention. And our podcast, Pitchfork Economics, is devoted to exploring where economics and economic theory and economic policy went wrong. But we're particularly interested in, a, in the way in which economic theory and practice and narrative co-evolves with culture. And, you know, the other thing you point to in your piece is greed, because the through line on all of this stuff whether it was the global financial meltdown of 2008 or, you know, like a lot of these things is, is sort of th this short-sightedness and greed around structuring the society where we reap all of the benefits possible in the near term for the powerful and kind of hope for the best for everybody else and the long-term consequences of it. Well, the the invisible hand will take care of yeah, it, Nick. It's, right, it's right, it's right there in in the econ one hundred and one books. We just let the market handle it, and uh, you know, uh, everything will work out for the best. The, the corollary of that being that anything we do to try to control these forces in reasonable ways will create more harm than good. Like so, to the extent that we try to control globalization 
that we try to ensure that people have jobs, uh, that we try to tax people enough so that the government has the capacity to, for instance, deal with a pandemic, that will all inevitably create more harm than help. You know, so that's really interesting to us is how neoclassical economics and homo economicus, this view that people are selfish and that if we're just all really selfish, it will all, the market will work well and it'll all be great and government should get out of the way and any intrusion in these processes, any intrusion in globalization will be harmful. All of these things, I think, you know, when I think about what really went wrong, it was letting that set of ideas dominate our culture, our politics, and our policy. You know, I'm a student of you and Eric Weinhacker, so yeah. I have enormous respect for the work. And so I I wrestle with this. I'm I'm probably slightly um, more to the center than than you guys, but I'm certainly not over there on the right because I do believe in the power of markets to uh, again, if shaped the right way to give us the speed, scope, and scale that we need. For instance, when I think about, um, you know, I'm the one who coined the term Green New Deal back in 2000, whenever, when, when Obama was elected. And for me, the idea was when you face a problem, for instance, like climate change, you know, there's only one thing that can give us the speed, scope, and scale we need, and that's the market. But we got to shape the market to produce the outcomes that we want. And that's where I totally agree with you guys, the notion that, the market is just this you know, benign thing that will produce the outcomes we want. No, but if you shape the market with the right incentives around um, producing you know, green technologies, around reducing carbon emissions, the market can be a huge and powerful force. Um, it's not as big as Mother Nature, but Father Greed can really rival her uh, you know, sometimes. But if you just say, well, we're just going to let the market rip, well, then you combine that with our generation, which I'm afraid will go down, is not the greatest generation, but the greediest generation, um, the most heedless generation of, about thinking about the future. That's a really bad combination. you know. So uh, I, to me, Nick, it's all about, I'm a little more agnostic about markets, only in the sense that I think they can be shaped the right way. But I totally share your view that taking the view that markets are you know, uh, in and of themselves, going to always produce the right solution. Well, we, we've seen that's simply not the case. And um, as the world became more market friendly as a product of globalization, the kind of income gaps that can be produced when you let the market run amok have now become a global problem. And that's why we need to step back and really uh, step back from market fundamentalism and talk instead about how do we shape markets with the kind of human values that produce the kind of elevating outcomes that we need and want. So obviously we agree on, on that point. As we like to say, uh, markets are self-organizing, but they're not self-regulating. And you, you, need, you need government to regulate markets. The problem with globalization, of course, is that uh, there is no supranational organization that can effectively regulate an international global market that can tax and regulate multinational corporations. There is nothing in our global system that is sufficient to adequately uh, regulate the modern economy. I would also take issue with the idea on climate change that, you know, I think it's too late for markets to deal with climate change. I look back at the New Deal that wasn't 
you know, incentivizing the market to address the Great Depression, that was government stepping in and and just experimenting, trying to fix things until they got some things right, they got some things wrong. And then eventually, of course, the, the spending of uh, World War II brought it to an end. I think we're at a point, it is such a crisis, where government has to step in and say, screw the market. We don't have time for the market. We can actually replace the grid over the next 10 years if we wanted to, if we decided to. We could take all the carbon out of the grid. Uh, it'll be an enormous expense, and it will. A lot of people who own oil stocks will lose money, but we could do it if we chose to do it. And the market can't. Maybe 40 years ago, we could have incentivized the market uh, through taxes and credits and so forth, but it's too late for that now. We don't have 40 years. Well, that's certainly a view. I disagree with it, though. Uh, I think you know California has proven you know that if you you know incentivize builders around efficiency, or if you enact um, mileage standards of a of a rising scale, uh, you can get a lot of change. But where I would agree with you is that we need to be much more radical in the incentivizing we're doing. You know, one of the things I learned because I wrote a book on this, uh, Hot, Flat, and Crowded, back in two thousand eight is that whenever we went to Detroit and said, okay, we're going to impose kind of regulations you and I are talking about now, uh, you got to put catalytic converters in your cars. But what do they say? Oh my God, that's the end of Western civilization. If you make us put catalytic converters in our cars, at Coca back then, that would be the end of Detroit. I mean, they said crazy stuff. And it turns out um, when we demanded they do it, they do it faster and cheaper than they ever anticipate. And so I still believe in that process. Where I agree with you is we've just been way too timid in imposing these kind of demands, uh, regulations, uh, races to the top. And um, if we did, uh, I think we'd get the same outcome, but uh, I think we'd get it faster and we'd get it more profitably and with more people aligned. Because you and I agree on, on all of this, but unfortunately, there are Americans who don't. A friend of mine likes to say he loves Obamacare because it means that um, all the climate deniers will live long enough to see how wrong they were. I don't really want to be around for that. You know what I mean? And uh, I I just really think that we need to be much more radical. I agree uh, there. And um, in incentivizing the market and and bringing people along because um, I do agree we have exactly enough time starting now. And the, the Trump four years were just a terrible detour. Um, We're going to take two years just to unwind the crazy stuff he did to get us back on track. But uh, so time is short, but I'm I'm still a believer that innovation can make make a difference. So, Tom, you're a wise man, um, and we love to put the benevolent dictator question to our guests, which is, you know, if you were in charge of the world, uh, yeah, I realize we're putting you on the spot, but you know, what are the, what are the high points of uh, what you would do? Well, it's a it's a very good question. I mean, one is I would I would absolutely guarantee a minimum income for every person on the planet. Again, we get to wish it's it's global, right? Sure. Yeah, I would guarantee you know a minimum income, uh, some kind of minimum access to uh, either telemedicine or or actual medicine. We're talking about the whole planet. And I would radically uh, incentivize uh, a green revolution. 
I, I would basically declare that we are not going to uh, engage in a moon race uh, to see who can be the first to reach the moon. We're going to have an earth race to see who can invent and scale the green technologies fastest uh, so men and women can live here sustainably on earth. But those would be, I think, my three three starting things. Yeah, those are not bad starting things. Well, Tom, thank you so much for spending this 30 minutes with us. We really deeply appreciate uh, you taking the time. And uh, we look forward to uh, seeing and reading you in the New York Times in the very near future. And given a choice between voting for Trump for dictator or voting for you, you have my vote. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had a different competition. But... <laughs> <laughs> okay, take care. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So, Goldie, what did you think? Uh, you know, I think we're in we're in general agreement um, yep. that uh, a lot of the predicaments we're in right now are due to uh, decades of greed and globalization, specifically the mismanagement of globalization. I I agree that. A lot of the problems we're seeing today on multiple fronts from the economy to democracy to the pandemic to climate change, uh, this has been decades in the making. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, I'm not even sure if we disagree with Tom, but I think our view is sort of a, I would say, a sharper and more pointed critique aimed at neoclassical economics, because a lot of the pathologies that Tom identifies, certainly in his article, How We Break the, Broke the World, greed and globalization, so on and so forth, are, you know, sort of co-evolved or were created by a lot of the neoclassical economic assumptions. And I think I would agree wholeheartedly is that there is no herd immunity to greed. Right. And the corollary of that being that, you know, we can't take America's existence for granted and that many other empires have fallen. I read, read a piece the other day about the American character and how, you know, we were born in revolution and we don't like to be told what to do. And anytime you try to impose standards on Americans, we fight back and so on and so forth. But, and that, that may indeed be the American character, but there is no guarantee that the new circumstances within which America finds itself in are friendly to that character, <laughs> right? There, there may be circumstances within which that unwillingness to compromise or to cooperate come in handy, but there are other circumstances within which that character will get you killed and will destroy your country or your enterprise. And, you know, I fear that the problem in America isn't our institutions or our politics or our policy. I fear that the problem is us. <laughs> the problem may be Americans, that we have persuaded ourselves and sort of inculcated the set of values in our society that may lead us to extinction in the same way that, you know, other idiosyncrasies have caused other cultures or countries to collapse. And, you know, time will tell, of course, but, you know, as we've talked about a lot on the, on the pod, the thing that produces prosperity in human societies isn't 
competition, it's cooperation. And it is probably likely that the thing that will lead to success for countries in an increasingly globalized and an increasingly technological world is the capacity to cooperate. Well, you know, I'd like to reach back to our conversation on the previous episode uh, with Rucker Bregman and say that I actually have a bit more faith in the American people because they're just people. And it's in our nature to uh, be cooperative and pro-social, et cetera. My fear is not the American people, but the American institutions. I mean, let's be honest, Nick. Let's be clear. If Hillary Clinton was president, for all of her flaws, if the Democrats were in control, we would have had a CDC uh, that was prepared for this, that would have acted quickly. We would have, it would have been based on science. We would have had an entirely different response. Just the, the use of the bully pulpit, the moral leadership on what to do in the face of a pandemic, it would have been completely different from what we've seen under Donald Trump. And we have Donald Trump as president, not because a majority of American voters wanted Donald Trump, but because we have this arcane institutional structure that has given us a minority-led government through the Electoral College, through the Senate, which uh, over-represents small rural states, and through uh, laws and norms that allow for gerrymandering at both the legislative and congressional level that gives Republicans this outsized majority that is not reflective of their standing with the American people, with voters. I think it's just something to reckon with. And in the meantime, it's not really constructive to be pessimistic and to feel like we can't fix this. We have to work hard to fix it and to try to persuade uh, all Americans that working together is a good thing, not a bad thing, and that greed isn't isn't a sign of a good character. It's a sign of bad character. And there's a, a very distinct difference between working hard and being a sociopath. And there's a lot to be gained by thinking through these things in a different way. And as pessimistic as I uh, sound sometimes, I'll, I'll stand by my assertion that there is no shame in tilting at windmills. <laughs> there you go. On the next episode of Pitchfork Economics, we'll be talking with Joel Gamble about how economic assumptions uphold racist systems. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.